the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by Ron Geyer Roofing. The Bible describes events that will mark the last days, or end times. 2 Timothy 3.1 says, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Matthew 24.44 tells us, Therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect Him. Bible teacher Ron Geyer leads us through Scripture that will help us to remain strong in the Lord. End Time Insights with Bible teacher Ron Geyer starts now. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Ron Geyer, End Time Insights. We love being here. We love the fact that you're listening, and we are thankful for the opportunity to share what God shows us in prayer and in our Bible studies. And we're currently on the book of Revelation, chapter 4, and I am going to finish this today. We spent a couple of weeks, because chapter 4 is where I believe the church is taken into heaven. Don't forget where the Holy Spirit goes, the church goes. Where the church goes, the Holy Spirit goes. And if the church is in heaven, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 2, then the Holy Spirit's in heaven in Revelation 4. And if the Holy Spirit's in Revelation 4, uh, verse 2, then the church is there also. So we are picking up on verse 6. There's only 11 verses in chapter 4. They deal with A, the rapture of the church, B, the attendees there who are the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit of God on Jesus, on the church. The saints are there. The church is there. The four creatures, we're going to talk about them today. They're there also. And the sea of glass. And verse 6, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Of course, the throne of God. I apologize. I forgot that, Lord. The throne of God was there, and God was seated in the throne. Verse 6, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne, there were four beasts or creatures full of eyes before and behind. Here in chapter four, the sea of glass, not too many people have really come to a conclusion on what they feel that this sea of glass represents. It's difficult. They don't give you a lot of information about it. But the important point here is that the sea of glass is unoccupied. And while the reference isn't clear, it could be represented in First Kings chapter 7 uh, by the brazen sea uh, that stood in front of Solomon's temple. Or some would say it's the lava in the temple before the altar of the Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies where God uh, was in the Jewish time and he's now in his throne and it's consistent that the brazen sea or the laver before the throne of God could be that what's represented by the sea of glass. But when we get into Revelation chapter 15, we'll see that the sea of glass now is occupied. Now that's uh, 11 chapters down the road, but let me read it to you because it's important. There are some good things in there that you need to understand. So Revelation 6, verse 6, chapter 4, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And Revelation 15, verses 2 through 4, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, 
and over the number of his name. I saw them stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God, verse 3. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints, who shall not fear thee, Lord, and glorify thy name. For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made known. So I like that, and there's some information in there. Here, the sea of glass, it's mingled with fire. It's not a calm sea anymore. It's a sea of glass. There's a little bit of turbulence, perhaps. It's got flames that's mingled. Believe it or not, if you can see flames and glass, that's what's visible here. And those flames, they represent judgment. They represent uh, persecution. They represent tribulation. Something has taken place. What's taken place? Well, the tribulation. And it has tried those who were victorious and gotten the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and the number of his name. These are tribulation saints now that are standing on that sea of glass. Don't forget, the church is already seated. They're seated in thrones, and they have crowns. Basically, the work of the church is done. That's what seated means. When you're seated, you're finished. And they've got crowns, meaning that they've received their reward for what they did on the earth. And now they are before the throne of God. And the sea of glass is before the throne of God. But in Revelation 4, it's empty. But in Revelation 15, we see who that sea of glass has been reserved for. It's been reserved for the tribulation saints. One thing I want to point out, they're singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Basically, that's identifying them as what? Who sings the song of Moses? Jews. These are tribulation saints who are Jewish. They've gotten saved through the ministry of the 144,000. There's a very good chance that uh, they've been slain for their faith. And now they're standing on the sea of glass before the throne of God, and they are worshiping God. Hallelujah. It's a wonderful picture. These tribulation saints, it's my opinion that they're only Jews, for they sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And the point here, the principle here is so important. Okay, going back to the chapter, we're on chapter four, you've got the church. The church has been raptured. They did not go to tribulation. They got saved under what? They got saved during the dispensation of grace. Hallelujah. They were spared the wrath of God. Here, though, we have another great amount of people that are standing on the sea of glass, and they, too, are saved. Hallelujah. The only thing is, though, they didn't get saved under grace. They missed that. They got saved under God's judgment, under God's wrath. Plan A, you can get saved under grace. But if you miss that, plan B, you can get saved during judgment. And that's exactly what happened. And I love that. Okay, the the goal is to get saved. Obviously, it's much, much better for you if you can get saved under grace, which is now before the church is removed from the earth. And before we go back to finishing the judgment upon the Jew, upon the Gentiles who have rejected God and his word. But in case you don't, you got the opportunity to get saved under judgment. Hallelujah. Verse 7, let's see who these living creatures are. And the first beast was like, I'm going to quit saying that. I'm going to say creature. The first creature, it's a better translation. And the first creature was like unto a lion, and the second creature like unto a calf, and the third creature had the face of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. John's focus doesn't stay too long on the empty sea of glass, for he quickly reverts back to the throne Don't forget the central theme of Revelation 4 is the throne of God. Hallelujah. He reverts back to the throne in his description of it and the four creatures which are all around it. 
you know, in some ways these creatures could represent the different attributes of God. Their eyes representing that God is what? All-seeing, all-knowing, that characteristic of the king of creation. The lion representing the strength and the dominion and the power of the kingdom creatures. The oxen representing the strength and endurance and the steadfastness of the servant. The servant animal is the ox. And while the face of man represents God's autonomous authority over the earth and wisdom and understanding, and of course the eagle, the strength and the power of the air is supreme in its own element. There's many interpretations, different uh, commentators say different things. And, you know, rather than say that most of them are wrong, I choose to say that most of them are probably right. They all have a little bit of insight. God gives us all a little bit of wisdom. God gives wisdom as every word is its own treasure of knowledge and understanding. Understanding comes, the Bible says that those that seek the Lord understand all things. There's no end to the limitless descriptions as to the greatness and the power and the supremacy of our God. We could take all day describing that. Notice, though, that each face of each creature represents sovereignty in their own specific environment. No one is greater in the animal kingdom than the lion. Neither can any animal outwork the servant animal, the oxen, nor is there greater authority in the earth than that what's been given to man. And finally, of course, the eagle is supreme in the sky. Remember, no man can see God, so God uses things that we can relate to, things that we can understand to see him and to kind of get a glimpse of him in a five-sense realm. Most of the time when you're looking at God, you're seeing light or you're seeing rainbows or you're seeing different hues of color. And here we're seeing animals and descriptions of faces uh, revealing how God wants you to know him at this particular time. Whether it's lampstands or creatures, colors or lights, God's wisdom reveals himself to us in ways that we can relate to. Verse 8, And the four beasts and the four creatures had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they don't rest, neither day or night. And they say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and which is and is to come. Now, normally when you see the six rings on anything, those are called seraphim. They're a higher class of angels than just the regular beings that perhaps have two wings or even four wings. Seraphim in the Bible have been identified as those angels that have six wings. One explanation for the four creatures is that they are angels and they very well may be. Six wings identify them as the seraphim. Either way, their presence here before and around the throne and majesty and holiness and sovereignty and worship, they provide that to the scene in heaven. The four living creatures, actually, the Greek word here is not the same as in chapters 11, 13, and 17, when the word for beast is not used. The word here is zoon, which is different than the other word therion. Therion means beast or wild or untamed, whereas zoon is milder, it means creature. The best surmise would be that these four creatures are some kind of angelic being. The first time we see the use of the word zoon is in Genesis 3, and it's translated cherubim. So that's why most commentators really do believe that this is a description of angels. In Ezekiel 1, 1 through 28, we actually get a description of what these cherubim look like. While they are similar in some aspects to the described creatures in Revelation 4, 6, there are some discrepancies that could perhaps bring some confusion. But, you know, the word normally 
interprets itself. It reveals itself in other scriptures. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 4 says that the seraphim are another order of angelic beings. And Isaiah 6 also says that those are the ones that have the six wings. So our best understanding of this particular scripture would be to conclude that these four creatures are seraphim and they are there before the throne of God to provide worship, to provide, I guess, guarding. And I know that the, at the time this is written, the devil is still has access up in the heaven. But trust me, nobody's approaching God. God is in no danger. Hallelujah. They not only guard the throne, but they worship God, as did the seraphim in Isaiah's vision. In Hebrew, to use the same word three times, holy, 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 is to describe something that means that person or object is utterly holy. He's utterly like the word. So calling God holy three times means that God is utterly and perfectly holy. Here's another aspect, another way of looking at the four creatures, Isaiah 6, the lion in Isaiah 6, he represents strength. In Psalm 103, the calf represents service. In Hebrews 1.14, the face of a man is representative of intelligence. And in Luke 2.52, the eagle's swiftness. In Daniel 9.21, the angelic vision has a strong allusion to Ezekiel 1.14. The living ones or living beings are also said to kind of represent or denote the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, The four living beings show the four Gospels. Matthew, Jesus is shown as the Lion of the tribe of Judah in the Gospel of Matthew. In Mark, Jesus is shown as man's servant, the calf. In Luke, Jesus is shown as a man. Uh, That's pretty obvious. And uh, John, Jesus is shown as God, the eagle. And what I love about it is that they are forever worshiping the Lord. The Bible says they worship him day and night. And before the throne was a sea of glass like unto crystal, four beasts full of eyes before and behind, and they worship God day and night. Where did that go? Verse 8. And the four beasts, each of them had six wings about him. They were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy. And I love that because God is an eternal being. Well, if God is an eternal being, he is the eternal being. He is the only creator of all things then we need to have a worship that's eternal. So I love it. They've got these guys, and no disrespect, men, but they are worshiping God day and night. And I look at worship, and, you know, Diane and I recently, we have ceased attending a church, a organized type of church. Uh, Some would say that we have a church in our home. I am not a pastor. I am not a prophet. But we do have a Bible study. Anywhere 15, 30 people show up. And then we have prayer on Thursday night. So we have not forsaken the assembling of ourselves together. But the point I'm trying to make is that we don't really have any type of praise team or anything like that. We don't have a choir, okay? But we sit there, we'll sing, and we'll worship the Lord. But that's just one aspect of our worship. The point I'm trying to drive home is when Diane and I, we attended Lakewood Church, one of the largest churches in America. We went there for 34 years. And we would teach classes all the time, marriage classes at that time. And we would have a room, and in between service, uh, that room would open up to us, and we would teach class in between the two services. And we would follow the class that was there before us, and for a while there, the class that was before us was children's church. (laughs) And we'd walk in there, we had to rearrange the chairs, we had to pick up the stuff that was lost, we had to pick up cookie crumbs off the floor and off of the seats and everything like that. But as I was doing that one day on my hands and knees, the Lord just ministered to me, Ron, that's a 
tremendous, beautiful act of worship to me that far surpasses anything that you could sing in organized choir or whatever. And it just ministered to me. And as I'm thinking about that, you know, the Lord revealed to me that, you know, worship is any act of obedience. Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that so simple? When you do something that God tells you to do, that shows him that you you acknowledge him as your Lord. And it's those acts that are the truest forms of worship. And you want to create a lifestyle where you are constantly worshiping God by doing the things that he's asked you to do. If he's asked you to hold a prayer meeting on Thursday night and you obey him, that is an act of worship. Uh, I think about wives. We taught marriage classes for years and the just the tremendous picture of obedience. You know, the Bible says women adapt your lives to fit in with the life of your husband, adapt to his vision, his plans for the marriage. And, you know, women, they're such fantastic servants. When they get married, they give up their individuality. They give up their name. They take on the name of their husband. They adapt their lives to fit into his plans. And they build their lives around him to make him look good. That's a biblical marriage. And you do form a team. The wife is not inferior. It's just you and your wife assigned to different roles to bring you into harmony, to create a picture of oneness that God wants to use your marriage to represent to the world what Christianity and a relationship with God looks like. And yet that's an act of worship. You have obeyed God. And it's hard. I couldn't do it. Men can't do it. You can't fit into a a lifestyle of somebody else and serve them and make that commitment. And wives do that all the time. And they enter into the covenant of marriage. And the very first thing they do, just by what they say and what they do at the wedding, just shows that they worship the Lord. That's a high form of worship. And they they come into the marriage with that spirit. And I just want to make that point. Hats off to the ladies. Hallelujah. By the way, I've been married for 46 years. I married up like the rest of you guys. My wife is a wonderful lady of God. Hallelujah. So back to the Gospels and the four creatures, even though the four Gospels tell the same story in essence, they also show four different personalities of God. You can easily see why these creatures, living beings, are symbolically associated with the four Gospels. But I think the best understanding about these four creatures that I've come across is a couple of paragraphs that Clarence Larkin spoke about them. So I'm going to read them to you. He says in Ezekiel 1, 1 through 28, and Ezekiel 10, 1 through 22, he has a vision, Ezekiel, of the cherubim of God. He describes them as having the likeness of man with the four faces and the four wings, feet like a calf's foot, hands like a man's hand, hidden under the wings on their four sides. Their four faces were different. The front face was that of a man. The right side was that of a lion. The left side face was that of an ox. And the rear face was that of an eagle. Once again, those four images. Their whole body, their back, their hands, and their wings were full of eyes round about. That looks like those creatures that I just described to you in Revelation chapter 4. In John's vision of the cherubim or the living creatures that are described like animals, the first was like a lion, the second was like a calf, like a young ox, the third had the face of a man, and the fourth was like an eagle. John's living creatures had six wings, while Ezekiel's only had four, but that could be just a different view that they had or something, but basically these are very similar in their descriptions. So I would go with that, that these are seraphim, a high order, a high class of angelic beings. And here's an important thing to note also. This is really interesting. I love this. When Israel camped, and then they marched, remember they camped at night, followed the cloud by day and the burning light by night. 
when Israel camped and when they marched, there was a fixed order to their activities. When they set up camp, the tabernacle resided in the middle, just like the throne is here, and the angels, the four creatures are all about it. When in camp, the tabernacle rested in the middle. The camp of Judah was composed of three tribes, and it resided on the east, and the standard bearing the image of a lion was on their on their standard or their flag. The camp of Ephraim consisted of three tribes, and that was on the west, and its standard bore the figure of an ox. The camp of Reuben, also composed of three tribes, resided on the south, and its standard bore the image of a man. And, of course, you can figure it out now. By now, the camp of Dan rested on the north, and its standard bore the image of an eagle. Thus, the tabernacle in the center of the camp was surrounded and protected by standards that bore the same four figures of Ezekiel's vision and John's living creatures. I find that fascinating. Verse 9, And when these beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him, verse 10, that sat on the throne, and they worship him that liveth forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying... So I love that. It's, once again, eternal God gets eternal worship and eternal praise. Here we see the creatures in worship to God before his throne. It's a signal for the rest of the heavenly assembly to do so, to follow their lead. Their worship includes affirmation that God is the eternal God, and thus so should worship to him be never-ending. Amen. I love it. To him that sat on the throne is very interesting. God the Father is on the central throne, but immediately... To his right sits God the Son, Jesus, on the throne. Hallelujah. But they both encompass the same throne. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit encompassed the Holy Spirit's there, the seven spirits before the throne of God. You've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost in heaven. Revelation 4.10, the elders fall down and they the throne and they worship him that liveth forever and ever. And that's a church. And we cast our crowns before the throne, saying, verse 11, I want to make some comments before I talk about verse 11. Saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things. For Thy pleasure they are and were created. Very simple, very simple worship for His creativity. Romans 1 talks about that fact. Man, you're inexcusable. We are all born with an innate knowledge of God, the Creator. And yet in our own wisdom, in our own arrogance, we have come to the place where now we worship the creation over the creator, going so far as to say deny the sovereignty of God in the earth today. That's ridiculous. I'm going to talk on sovereignty next week. I've been threatening to. I am going to do that in Jesus' name. But the church joins in this worship in Revelation 4.10. Once more, his eternal existence is confirmed. One of the meanings of the word worship means to kiss like a dog licking his master's hand. The saints throw down their crowns as a sign of humility and recognition that our crowns don't really belong to us. They're really the crowns of the Lord Jesus Christ. They belong to him and they came from him. And while we were on the earth in service, he lets us use them. We don't get them till we ascend to heaven, but it's because of Jesus Christ that we can work in his stead while we are on this earth. These crowns are the victorious crowns that Jesus has placed on our heads. They or we have done nothing to earn these crowns. These crowns belong to Jesus and not us. He won the victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He placed them on our heads. Everyone benefits from the victory, but it's Jesus who has done all the work. This is another act of humility on the part of the church. When they throw the crowns at Jesus' feet, they are telling him that they are his 
because he won them. He deserves the glory. Amen. And so that's what we're seeing in verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you alone have created all things. For thy pleasure they are and were created. He alone is worthy. God is a jealous God. He will not allow the believer to mess around with false gods. That's why I find this stuff so amazing that we in the church, thinking that because God gave us authority to use on the earth, that he can't do anything unless we pray about it. I like the fact that we're encouraged to pray, and I believe in prayer, and I believe in answered prayer, and I know that the Lord loves to answer prayer. He delights in the prayers of a righteous man. But to take it to the next level that he can't do anything unless we pray, that's bold, it's arrogant. Truth is, it's demonic. It's from the mind of Satan. Amen? So we love you guys. That's uh, Revelation chapter 4. That's the end of that. I want to encourage you for daily worship, just like these guys. Remember, he's eternal. He's God. He's the creator. Simplest, he is God and you are not. Give him the worship worthy. Do his name. And remember to thank, thank him for what he's done for you. He is the only true God. He alone is worthy. Amen. Thank you for joining us for End Time Insights with Ron Geyer. Listen again next Sunday night at 8 on 100.7 The Word, where faith comes by hearing. You can also listen to the podcast of this program by going to kkht.com. If you would like to contact Ron, email him at gospelguy at comcast.net. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.